these last few years have had a weight to them unlike any other. And each year it's felt as if the world had hit a valley and the next year we were just going to climb out. But something has changed in the air this year. There's a sense of moral decay. It's not just one person or one party or one country that is softening and weakening the structures around us, but something that feels systemic and affecting more aspects of our society than any of us are able to keep track of. Robert Putnam of Harvard points out that people are less trustful today. In the 1950s and the 1960s, 40s and 50s, 60% of Americans said that they trusted their neighbors. Today, only 32% trust their neighbors. And millennials is only 18%. Trust is decaying. It'd be easy if the only cause of our decay were the echo chambers we all live in on social media, each reinforcing our own view. It'd be easy if the only cause of our decay was the hyper-individualism that has led to a society where 35% of Americans over 45 years old are chronically lonely, with only 8% reporting having important conversations with their neighbor. It'd be easy if the only cause of our decay was the regularity of mass shootings in our country, or that our kids, they now regularly practice how to hide from an active shooter as if it's an earthquake, as if it cannot be prevented, but it can be prepared for. For the first time since 1918, the American lifespan is shortening. In 1915 to 1918, we were in the World War and there was a flu pandemic. Today there is no war and there is no flu epidemic. And our lifespans are decreasing. Since the smartphone was introduced, kids between the ages of 10 and 17 years old, their suicide rate has gone up by 70%. And I know. Many of you, you're seething there that I didn't mention that one other thing that's crumbling. I mean, Bauer, he didn't even talk about the opioid crisis. He didn't talk about the climate crisis or domestic terrorism or, or, or. And I could get up here and honestly, I could rage about all of it. But the sense that I have is that there's not one subject. There's a general moral decay. And there's this one question that I keep returning to over and over again, and usually it's at nighttime when the kids have gone to sleep and Elise has gone to sleep and the house is quiet. And I ruminate on all these dimensions of moral decay and our time while I've been putting my heart and my soul into the Emmanuel Next campaign. And I ask myself, how does this campaign fit into a moment of time where it feels like the entire world is decaying around us? And it's led me to the same question again and again and again. When else was there such a moral breakdown? And how did it affect the Jews? And what did those Jews learn from it? And we have got a lot of Jewish history to look back at and to guide us. But the more that I thought about it, I realized that the Judaism that we all know today it was born out of destruction, a destruction which was caused by moral decay. The Jews during the Second Temple time period were also living in a time of moral decay that had seeped into every single aspect of their life. 
While it'd be easy to talk about the Pharisees or the Sadducees, that would just be too easy and simple. That'd be like blaming the Republicans or the Democrats. When the rabbis of the Babylonian Talmud, when they talk about the cause of the destruction of the temple, they don't blame the Romans. They don't blame a foreign power because that would be too easy. Instead, they look inward. The rabbis look at how individuals behaved and treated each other. To find out the why, the rabbis, they zoom their lens into Gittin 55b of the Babylonian Talmud. And they tell a story with such profound wisdom that in many respects, it becomes the foundation for the survival of Judaism. In many respects, it explains why we're all here today. Literally, in the middle of a work week, in the middle of a work day, and it's standing room only. The scene is getting 55B, and it takes place at a banquet. There is a man who had a friend named Kamsa, but he also had an enemy named Bar Kamsa. So he tells his servant, listen, go get my friend Kamsa. I want him to come to the banquet. So he goes and he gets the wrong guy, because it's a Talmudic story. And Bar Kamsa shows up. And the man sees him. He sees it's his enemy. He goes up. He goes, Bar Kamsa, get out. You're my enemy. Now, Bar Kamsa, he's... He does not want to be embarrassed. He goes, listen, listen, I know, okay, I'll pay for my own meal. Just please let me stay. He goes, no, get out. He goes, listen, I'll pay for half the banquet. Please just let me stay. He said, absolutely not. Get out of here. He goes, listen, I'll pay for the whole banquet. Just don't embarrass me. And at that, he grabs him, drags him out of the banquet, and throws him out. Now, did I mention that there are sages sitting at this banquet and they say absolutely nothing about Bar Kamsa being publicly embarrassed. And I should tell you that public embarrassment in the Talmud is considered one of the highest moral crimes and these sages sit silently. And so with that, Bar Kamsa, he says to himself, listen, since those sages did not get up and protest on my behalf when I was being embarrassed, and they seem to be fine, I'm going to go to the Romans. I'm going to go to a foreign power, and I'm going to use that foreign power to overthrow my own nation. So Bar Kamsa, he goes to the emperor, and he tells him that the Jews have rebelled against them. And if he gave them an offering, they would reject it. So the emperor detests him, he gives them a little cow, he takes the cow to the temple, and on the way, Bar Kamsa, he puts a nick in its lip to make it unkosher and unfit to sacrifice. Well, when the sages see him and he comes to the temple, the first thing they say is, listen, let's just sacrifice the animal. I don't want any issue with the Romans here. But then another sage jumps up and goes, no, 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 you can't do that. If we sacrifice that animal with a blemish, people are going to think it's okay to bring a blemished animal to the temple. Another sage jumps in with a brilliant idea. Let's kill Bar Kamsa. <laughs> then the guy can't go back to the Romans. Hearing this, another sage jumped up. He goes, we cannot kill Bar Kamsa. Because if we kill Bar Kamsa, other people are going to think, if you bring up blemished animals, we're going to kill you. He doesn't protest because it's wrong or because there's no ethics or morality. They're protesting because they're afraid of what people will think. There is no ethics or morality guiding the sage's actions. Rather, it's all about what other people will think. Moral decay has now eroded to the very core of Judaism. And then the Talmudic story, it gives one final punch. 
and it states unequivocally that the destruction of the second temple happened because of excessive aventanut, excessive meekness. Silence was the crime. When you live in a world and in a moment of history when all around you seems to be decaying, it's never the decay that will end us. It's when we're too meek. Because meekness is the fertilizer of moral decay. The temple was destroyed in the year 70 CE, and it was a small group of Jews who then fled to a nearby city by the name of Yavna. And there they were confronted with another choice. Because up until that point, Judaism had been a centralized religion based in the temple. There was no system, there was no structure to survive outside of Jerusalem. A meek person, at this point, they would just throw their hands up and say, we're done. Judaism's over. It's come to an end. But this group of Jews, they were anything but meek. They knew that something had to be done. Those Jews in Yavna, they learned a deep lesson from the Second Temple's destruction. If they were going to survive excessive meekness, it would have to be thrown out. And instead, the real world would have to be confronted with bold and with revolutionary leadership. And that is exactly what they did. They invented rabbinic Judaism, a system that would nurture and sustain Judaism in a world of dispersed Jews. The Jews of Yavna, they invented a system where sacredness it was no longer found in a place, but rather it was found by a collection of people. And they called that collection of people a minion. And they called these new gathering places synagogues. Literally from the Greek word synagogia, a gathering place of people. The bold move, it was revolutionary. And it worked. Because the Romans are not here. The Greeks are not here. The Assyrians are not here, but the Jews are here filling every single seat in this room. Rabbi Steve Leder points out that the synagogue is the only institution for the past 2,000 years till this day that makes Jews. Every other Jewish organization in our community and across our country uses Jews. They're important organizations. But there is only one organization that makes Jews. The only reason that we're sitting here today is because of the bold leadership of the rabbis of Yavna who refused to be meek in the face of decay, despair, and displacement. Those rabbis, they saw that the world had changed. And if they didn't change with it, Judaism would be gone, just like that temple was gone. Rabbi B'nai Lapi teaches a lesson from Rabbi Yitz Greenberg that the entire endeavor of Judaism, the entire system of Judaism, from the laws of Kashrut to keeping Shabbat to fasting on Yom Kippur is all designed for a single thing. Judaism's goal is simple. There are incredibly complex systems put in place to accomplish this goal, but every system points towards the exact same goal. The goal of Judaism, it's not halacha. It's not Jewish law. The goal of Judaism, it's not tikkun olam. The goal of Judaism is to make good people. That's it. 
we build menches. Yom Kippur, it's not instituted just to be hungry. It was put in place for us to reflect and to meditate for an entire day on our existence, on our relationships, and whether we're living our best lives. And not just our best lives for ourselves, but are we living our best lives for all those generations that are going to come after us? Rabbi Ben Lapi points out that Judaism, it's not about tikkun olam. Judaism is about being a mensch. Because if you're a mensch, you do tikkun olam. You care for the homeless. You care for the refugee. You care for the kid that is locked up in a cage. Because it's obvious. Because that's what a good person does. Not because tikkun olam is the primary focus of Judaism. And I could go on and on. But this right here, this is what the rabbi's goal was in Yavna. When they looked back on what brought us to the brink of disappearing into the ether of time, and there is no way they could have imagined what was coming in the future. They couldn't have imagined the Spanish Inquisition, the ghettos we'd live in, the pogroms, the development of Kabbalah and Hasidism, the Holocaust, the modern state of Israel, American Jewry, this eclectic group of Jews in San Francisco sitting here today. They couldn't have imagined any of it. And they didn't try to. They knew they had a responsibility to those generations that were going to come after them. That has been the foundation of Judaism for 2,000 years. The revolutionary Jews in Yavna, they set two goals for us. The first was not to be meek. And the second was to create synagogues that would create generations upon generations of menches. Now one could ask, how could you talk about a capital campaign to rebuild the synagogue when the world is in such dire need? Well, what has led the Jewish people to be leaders in nearly every field and to care for the world, it didn't just come out of the firmament. It came out of the synagogue. It came out of thousands of years of Jews coming together, singing together, arguing together, and soul-searching together. That developed a culture and a people that became activists. And it's not just activists with the homeless or with the refugees or desegregating the South, but activists in their own personal relationships. An activist is not meek, but by the very nature of the word, active. The synagogue has been our secret weapon for 2,000 years. It's been our training ground for generations upon generations of Jews to meditate and to discuss not just what the world is, but what it should be. There's a reason that our religious services always end with the song, O Seh Shalom. We are singing and we're meditating as a community and reminding each other that it's our job to leave these walls, to leave this synagogue, and to push peace and to perfection into the world. And we never sing it alone. We sing it as a minion. We sing it as a synagogue, the gathering place of people to become menches. It was 100 years ago this January, the last time the U.S. residents' lifespan shrank, that in the face of such decline, that Rabbi Martin Meyer embarked upon creating 
Congregation Emmanuel as the center of Judaism in San Francisco. This building that we're sitting in is meant to be a response to the collapse of the second temple. This building was meant to be the third temple. The first and the second temple, they were in Jerusalem. And our synagogue founders, with their chutzpah grand vision, they were intent on building the third temple. The Jews of San Francisco, they thought America was Zion. And if America was Zion, there was only one place in the United States that could be Jerusalem. And that was San Francisco. And if San Francisco is Jerusalem, the center of Jerusalem was going to be Congregation Emmanuel. So with just 260 members, think about that, 260 members, they built the third temple at Two Lake Street. This entire building is meant to be modeled after the second temple in Jerusalem. The steps coming off of Lake Street are meant to be like the experience of walking into the second temple. The same courtyard, the same outer sanctuary, and finally at the center of it all, the Holy of Holies, the Ark right behind me. And even though the world was in decay in the early 1900s, the Jews of San Francisco, they got together to build the third temple because they were thinking about you. Those 260 families, they built this sanctuary with 2,000 seats. Now look around the room. Look up, look up there, because there are no seats left. And this is la less than half of our synagogue in the room right now. That seat that you're sitting in, it most likely, it was never sat in by those original families that got together to build this place because they never could have gotten close to filling this room. But they put that seat here for you. They put that floor here for you. They put this ark here for you. They put this dome here to remind us of what happened at the second temple and to remind us of what our job is with the gift of the third temple. And they couldn't have imagined what was coming. They couldn't imagine just three years after opening this that the Great Depression would hit. They couldn't imagine that just 15 years after opening, the worst moment in all of Judaism, worse than the destruction of the Second Temple, worse than our time in Egypt, was coming. They couldn't have imagined the little black boy who was born that year by the name of Martin Luther King would eventually stand on this pulpit. They couldn't have imagined the AIDS epidemic and that this congregation would become the epicenter of treating AIDS patients with dignity and care. They couldn't have imagined that their synagogue would become one of the leading voices to end the homeless crisis in their Jerusalem. But you see, they didn't need to. That wasn't their job. Their job is the same job that we have today. It's to lay the foundation and not to be meek when we look at the world we're living in and to think about what our response to it should be. When our president, Alan Grenitz, talked about the Emmanuel Next Project on Rosh Hashanah, he was speaking the same language as Rabbi Martin Meyer spoke 100 years ago. He was speaking the same language as those revolutionary Jews in Yavna. And I'm sure that at each moment in history when a person got up and spoke, people thought that their focus was on building a building. But it was never that. The thousands of buildings that Jews have constructed since our time in Yavna were built for the sole purpose of building us. 
Livnot ulibanot, we build to be built. When we look around and we feel overwhelmed by the extent of the decay in 2019 and we don't know where to start, that urgency that you feel as you sit in that seat, as you sit in that seat that was built for you way before you, as you turn to the person next to you in this room, in this third temple, it was all designed as an intricate system for us to ask these questions, to wonder what our role is and how we can fix it. The feeling inside of us, it didn't just happen by accident. It comes from an incredibly complex web of systems that we have built over thousands of years with a single laser-focused mission in mind, and that's to make good people that feel chosen to care for this planet and all of its inhabitants. And that goal has never changed. The world needs hope. The world needs leaders. The world needs scientists. The world needs revolutionary mensches. And that's why it's our job and it's our obligation to not be meek, but to be bold and to lay the groundwork for a brighter San Francisco, a more thriving America, and oh says shalom, a more peaceful world. So that in a hundred years, the synagogue, that courtyard, will be filled with menches that try to imagine why those chutzpahic Jews of 2020 were so audacious that they would create a home for them. A group of people that they would never know. A group of people whose names would not be remembered. We do it because this is the core principle of Judaism. We don't just do things for ourselves or just for our kids. But we do it for all of those that come after us. And not just for the Jews, but to bring morality and ethics and above all, peace into this world. And it starts right here.